You are listening to FYN Unscripted, a podcast from the Federal Youth Network. Join us as we explore some of the realities, challenges, and motivations of public servants working within the Government of Canada. All of our episodes are available in both English and French. Si vous préférez écouter en français, un épisode sur le même sujet est également disponible sur ce canal. Welcome to Fin Unscripted. My name is Tamara Connectel, and I'm happy to host this episode of Fin Unscripted for you, the podcast from the Federal Youth Network. I would begin by acknowledging that I'm recording this episode from Lethbridge, Alberta. Lethbridge is located within Treaty 7 territory, the lands of the Blackfoot Confederation, which is the Kainai, Pakani, and Siksika peoples. Lethbridge is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. And in Blackfoot, the word for hello is oki. So I would like to say oki to all of our listeners today. I'll take a moment to introduce myself a bit before presenting our two guests today. I've been in the public service for almost 10 years with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency or the CFIA. I'm currently a communications officer with the communications and public affairs branch of CFIA. And I've previously held administrative roles that range from reception all the way up to regional planning and resource manager within the CR and AS uh, levels. I've also chaired several employee networks over the years, including the Southern Alberta Mental Health and Wellness Committee, an area-wide administrative assistant community, and a grassroots anti-racism team that aims to educate through storytelling and lived experiences. Now, much like the chicken or the egg question, today on the podcast, we're going to explore a similar paradox in career progression, that of getting experience so that you can have experience to get experience. That was a mouthful to say, but basically we want to discuss the fact that in the public service, we're often asked to have certain experiences in order to progress in our career, and these experiences have to be acquired. However, it's not always obvious where to start, and obviously the path is not uniform for everybody. So to help us in this discussion and to share a bit of their journey, it's my pleasure to welcome Andrew Abella and Linda McMillan. To start the conversation, I'm going to invite Linda and Andrew to introduce themselves and explain how they've created opportunities in their careers to gain experience in advance. So, Linda, the floor is yours. Thanks so much, Tamara. My name is Linda McMillan, and I'm currently the Director of Communications and Access to Information and Privacy at the Immigration and Refugee Board. Uh, I've spent a little more than 25 years in the public service now since I first started with the Federal Student Work Experience Program at the Canadian Human Rights Commission in 1996. I guess that makes it almost 26 years. Uh, worked in communications at the Human Rights Commission, Health Canada, Fisheries and Oceans Canada, and then got an opportunity to pivot my career a bit within Fisheries and Oceans and went into a role in program delivery, followed by policy development, policy advice, went from there to the Canada School of Public Service, where again, I held a range of roles in policy programs, communications, client service, digital and human resources innovation. Uh, and then about a year and a half ago, came back to my roots in communications by accepting a new opportunity with the IRB. Uh, because I started with FSWEP, I didn't have to grapple with the experience challenge too much at the beginning of my career, 
but I have had a number of times in my career where I wanted to pivot and move in a different direction. And those gave me some really great opportunities to think about how leveraging experience in one part of life can be applied to another. So it's made for a really interesting career progression. That's wonderful. Thank you, Linda. Andrew, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, yeah. Hi, everyone. Super nice to be here and speak with you today from the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, otherwise known as uh, Toronto. And uh, I have a bit of an interesting career progression where I think this is actually sort of my second or third career in my life. Um, so I have a history as a psychology and neuroscience researcher. And uh, basically, I've spent the past couple of years in the public service. I'm currently acting as assistant director, uh, leading the behavioral insights and experimentation team within the client experience branch at IRCC. And before this, I actually entered the public service at a very strange time in 2020 during the COVID-19 pandemic. And as a behavioral science researcher, I got recruited to specifically advise on the government's uh, pandemic response. And I was placed within the office of the chief public health officer on the science policy team. So my job for just about a year was to do research and advise Dr. Tam on the government's pandemic response, which was of course a very stressful and difficult time. And uh, I think the critical point to highlight here is that I did not have experience in public health, but I did have experience as a researcher. And some of the experiences throughout my career kind of led to my current career as a public servant. Um, yeah, happy to talk more about these topics today. That's great. And that actually leads me kind of into our first question for the both of you is that what key experience in, in other previous you know, roles or, or personal life or other career uh, trajectories that you had, what key experience do you find you needed to start your career in the Government of Canada, the GC? Linda, I'll go to you first. I thought we were going to let Andrew go first this time. Uh, you know, it's been really different for me at different phases in my career. As I said, I came in as a student through a student work experience program, and we don't ask that many questions about experience with students. It's a great opportunity to kind of build some first experiences in the area if you're studying in the right field and interview fairly well there are a lot of things you can get a chance to do um, as i've moved through my career it's been different at different key phases you know to move from a junior communications advisor at like an is2 level up to an is4 i needed to be able to demonstrate leadership and initiative and more than just doing what was tasked to me. And for that, I was able to draw on some experiences from within my job, but also experiences from volunteer engagement and places that I had played leadership roles, you know, becoming a manager for the first time. I needed to kind of tap into, again, experiences I'd had elsewhere, because of course, never having been a manager, I hadn't managed at work, but I had led volunteer teams. I've, I've seen people use academic teams really effectively. You know, I project manage this huge research project or initiative or something, and people are able to kind of make that crosswalk. And then as I moved into um, career changes, moving from communications to policy, from policy to program delivery, it was a lot around uh, critical thinking, strategic thinking, identifying more than just the communications considerations, 
synthesizing different ideas, different information and inputs. Uh, but at, at each of those change points or trajectories, what I found was really helpful was to try to think about what people were getting at when they were looking for certain experience. It's not necessarily the ticky box that you've already had this job before getting this job. They're looking for those skills that transfer. They're looking for some kind of lived experience that is a good predictor for being able to succeed there. And so a lot of my approach has been about looking at the full breadth of my experience and saying what's transferable as a capability or a skill here uh, and matching that with what I think they're looking for when they ask for a particular experience. So I think those were the kinds of experience that I've mostly needed, but it often wasn't dressed up in the same words that they originally asked about. It took a little bit of interpretation and mix and match. That would be my take, but I'm curious to hear Andrew's. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love that you brought up that transferable skills. Um, I really want to touch on that a, a little bit later in our discussion here. Andrew, tell us, uh, you know, we, we just heard from from Linda, who's been in public service for, you know, 25 years, and you're new to public service. So two different perspectives. So if you could just uh, expand a little bit more on what you started there about uh, getting experience and starting your career in uh, Government of Canada. Yeah, so I... I can talk a lot about my own experiences, which is, I think, unique to being a researcher, someone who's in academia, bridging the gap into public service. But I think it's going to be applicable to pretty much anyone getting into public service. The first of which is that, like, sometimes when we're looking for things to do kind of in our, our free time or kind of activities that interest us, I think we often focus a little bit too much on, like, what are the actual skills we need to develop? And instead, I would encourage people to just follow their passions and let that lead the way. Here's an example. When I was in grad school, I was obviously in the lab seven days a week, pretty much doing research all the time. But I came across this opportunity to volunteer for the school board of Montreal, basically advising on the development of their science curriculum. So at first I was like, oh gosh, I don't have time for this, but it sounds really cool. I really like communicating about science to different populations and encouraging kids to learn about science. This sounds cool. Maybe I'll, I'll reach out. And as it turned out, the demand was like, I had to attend a three hour meeting once every three months. And this experience actually gave me two very critical skills, which has helped me in the government. The first of which is communicating about complicated scientific principles to a general audience. They basically making complicated things very simple and easy to understand. The second of which is that this was completely in French. So I was pretty bilingual before this experience, but this practice of just speaking French to different instructors and doing the scientific work in French really helped me practice my French for uh, working in the public service to get my language certifications. Other experiences that are kind of random in grad school is I, I worked for the labor union for the, uh, for teaching assistants and uh, instructors at McGill. And, you know, I didn't expect at the time for that to be quote unquote relevant, but navigating complicated bureaucracy and policy documents, that is something that I routinely tap into now as a researcher in the government. And um, I think finally, um, the last thing that really helped me bridge into government of Canada from my career as a researcher was just leaving the lab and getting a job within industry. So for me, that meant working at a consulting firm. Now, as a neuroscience researcher, I never would have imagined that I would work as a consultant advising on things like public service challenges, industry behavioral challenges, things like that. 
Um, but that experience was absolutely critical to where my career is now um, as a researcher in government. So it's really, uh, it's it's easy to say, like, lead, like, follow the skills that you need to find the opportunities that you do. But I think if you do the other way around, if just follow your passions and determine how these skills might be relevant later, you'll find a nice path that way. Because first of all, we never really know how useful our experiences will be until we actually tap into them later on. So that's why I think uh, following your passions would be a good uh, piece of advice for anyone looking at uh, obtaining different kinds of experience. Absolutely. And I think I think you're right. You never really know where it's going to come in handy or even what kind of skills you're really building as you're as you're doing these these passion projects or even, you know, d- different jobs you have throughout your life. And, you know, I have often talked to, you know, to one of my mentors about how there's there's certain tasks and certain things or that I take on that almost uh, you have this Miyagi, Mr. Miyagi experience where, you know, how Mr. Miyagi teaches Daniel to, you know, paint the fence up and down or, you know, wax the car. And then really he's actually teaching him this, you know, those actual karate moves that come with those, those motions. So I always say like, you know, there's certain uh, things that I've done in my life that really Miyagi'd me into actually being prepared for future roles that, you know, I've wanted or that I've, that I've uh, taken on. So definitely there's that, that part of those passion projects and, and following your passions that really can prepare you for um, for your career in, in public service or otherwise. So what I want to ask you both about, and I'll go to Linda first here, is what kind of role do you think somebody can expect with with no experience, right? So maybe we're coming in, right, as a student, like, you know, like you did through the FSWEP program, you don't really have experience in public service, or maybe you're looking to transition. So what kind of role can somebody expect to come into um, the government of Canada with no experience? It's a great question. Unfortunately, I'm not sure my answer is that great, because I feel like it depends a lot. And it depends what doors are open at a particular time. Um, my own experience and what I've seen with a lot of people I've hired over the years was many of us really started with whatever job was available. You know, I was a student in communications, so I wrote press releases that someone else was going to sign off. And then somebody got sick, so I got a chance to write an opinion editorial piece. And then someone was doing something else. I hired... um, one of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with as like a CR4 casual contract, basically stamping papers coming in for the access to information and privacy function. And, you know, she moved on and had a really impressive career in communications and is now a novelist. Um, I managed a call center for a long time and we had a lot of people coming in who were fluently bilingual, which was an essential for there but either had very little professional experience or experience that was in a completely different field, but they were looking for that foot in the door in the public service. And I think what I really observed in my experience was no matter what the job was, usually the first job wasn't the dream job. It wasn't everything we ever wanted. It wasn't using every skill we had or every aspiration, but that it's not just the foot in the door, it's starting to learn the context. And a little bit, as Andrew was saying, about following your passion, you bring your own interests and your baggage with you. And so when I was a a communications student 
if there was a project or a committee or a planning event going on that I thought sounded interesting, I would volunteer even if it had nothing to do with my job. I had a CR4 in the call center who heard me mentioning in passing at one point that I'd really like to explore the possible use of uh, chatbots. And they had a slow couple of weeks over the holidays. So he used that time at work to do research on how chatbots could be used in a call center environment. And that kind of jumping in, following our interests, seeing where there was a need, doing a great job, even if it's not the job we wanted forever, created new opportunities and helped us start to see where there was a pathway to pursue in terms of our careers. So I I would say usually the first job isn't going to be the dream job, but the diversity is almost infinite. I've seen people come in as students, as clerks, as admin support in an office, as call center agents, and none of that has really constrained where they've gone in their careers if they just made a point of learning as much as they could and doing the best with the job in front of them while starting to figure out where else those skills could take them. I totally agree. And, um, you know, I, I started off as a CR4. Like I said in my uh, my intro there, I started off as a receptionist. And 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 like you said, I just raised my hand for for anything, right? If, if they needed an event planned, that was just a small scale for our local district. No problem. I'm on it. I have some event planning. You know, I, I enjoy event planning. And then through that, I built event planning skills. And now I do uh, our all staff of virtual events for CFIA, right? I'm, I'm, I'm part of that uh, file here with the CFIA. So it's it's really just little things, just raise your hand, get in where you can, and, uh, and, and you can find amazing ways to move forward just by taking on little side projects here and there, um, wherever you can. Andrew, anything to add? Yeah, for sure. I think I can give some complimentary kind of advice here specifically for for people maybe from like the social sciences behavioral sciences that might want to get into government because traditionally people working for government had a either a comms background or a public policy background but nowadays it doesn't matter what department or agency you work in like we're looking for expertise in a wide variety of disciplines the work we're doing now is truly interdisciplinary and this is really important to highlight because i don't think this has really trickled down to the university level um, for example, when you're as a, like I was a psychology researcher, right? Like people would never talk about the possibility of working for government. In fact, I didn't know about that possibility until quite recently. I never would have imagined I'm working uh, for IRCC right now in, in, on immigration policy and kind of experimentation. I would never have imagined this. So the point here is that like when you're looking at the kind of uh, studies that you're doing, let's say an undergraduate uh, or college you have to actually think about the concrete skills that you're learning and look beyond your domain. So I know that, you know, specifically for me within psychology, a lot of people talk about like, oh, I'd love to work in public health or something. But behavior in psychology and other domains like sociology, let's say, and anthropology and social sciences, these are applicable to a wide variety of departments within government because anything related to government service delivery and policy has that interaction with people. So if you have uh, expertise in, let's say, statistics or understanding of behavior or systems or uh, society and how it interacts with people in government, these are very valuable like expertise to have within government. And you're very much needed in a lot of different shops within government. So my, my concrete advice here would be to just get outside your bubble a little bit. 
to look at what opportunities exist beyond your specific domain. And this even applies to if you're in an FSWIP job or within government just starting out. Don't just look within your department. Talk to other people within the community and other departments and see what opportunities are available. If you feel comfortable and safe to do so, tell your manager that you want other experiences. Tell your manager you're open to certain acting opportunities that might give you a bit more experience beyond your current role. If you make that clear from as early on as possible in your job, your manager more, more than likely will be willing to help you and identify those opportunities to bring you to those uh, kinds of experiences that you need and want. So the advice there is to just look beyond your specific domain and get out of your bubble more and be open to new opportunities and new areas. And that's a really great segue into the question I was going to ask you to next is, is what experience that's not necessarily related to your position right now has been serving you the best? Um, Andrew, I'm going to go to you first. So what's been serving you the best that really might not be necessarily related to what you're doing right now? I think that uh, it's it's a weird one because like, as I said, I was a neuroscientist. So for many years, almost a decade, my job was to understand decision-making and how the hippocampus and memory systems interact to support decision-making. I don't know if you would ever imagine how that could be applicable to government, but I'm gonna tell you that knowing how to plan experiments and understand statistics allows me to implement new service delivery changes and new policies and measure the impact of those changes. That's my day-to-day bread and butter of the whole of the whole behavioral insights and experimentation team. Now, you know, 10, 15 years ago when I was working in the lab every day, I would have never guessed that those skills were so applicable to what I'm doing right now. But all of that research expertise is now uh, I'm drawing on this every day. Um, I think the other area of ex- or other experience I never would have imagined being applicable is just uh, working as a consultant. Um, I, a bit of a brief story is like I was a postdoc at CAMH in Toronto and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was thinking about academia as an option and I decided, hey, maybe I need to get more degrees. Maybe I need to get an MBA to be applicable into industry. Of course, this is insane because I had a PhD already and a Bachelor of Science, but I go to this MBA open house at York University and immediately it's clear that I should not be doing an MBA. But I meet a professor there and he tells me like, hey, you don't need an MBA, but you should apply for this job at this consulting firm. I think you would like it. And they're hiring psychology researchers. And that experience pretty much changed the path of my whole career because working at that consulting firm for a year, uh, it's called BE Works in Toronto. It actually led to me working in government uh, to support the pandemic response. And again, I never would have guessed I was on that path from the get-go. That's awesome. And it also really highlights the importance of networking and kind of who you know, because we can make some of these decisions on our own as, as we go through our career path. But sometimes you just need that one person to go, hey, you know what, have you tried this? Actually, you know, maybe somebody more experienced or just somebody who passing remark and just changes the course of your career um, and helps you make a decision. Uh, Linda, how about you? Uh, what experience that maybe not necessarily related to your position right now has been serving you the best? Yeah, I, honestly, I want to go off on a tangent and rant about how exciting being exposed to behavioral insights in the last number of years has been and how powerful that whole discipline is for policy development and for communications because it gives us a chance to think more strategically 
about what we're actually trying to achieve with those initiatives. But I know that's not the question. Uh, I am never going to be an expert in behavioral insights, but it is kind of a neat segue to what I think has really been very cool experience and very helpful to me coming back to communications. Uh, and that's kind of the hybrid of having worked in client service and innovation um, for a while. And the reason I say that they're sort of closely linked is that client service is very much anchored around empathy. And a lot of the innovation and digital stuff is around digital mindsets, digital skills, like empathy and understanding where people uh, stand with where they are. I, you know, I loved being in communications in my first tour of duty in the discipline. And I really only left communications because I was like, 25 and I thought I'm planning on doing this for another 40 years, you know, I, I'd like to have more experiences than just the ones that I've already kind of had. But working in that kind of innovation space, getting to work with people who were doing, you know, agile methodologies and design thinking and all of these kinds of skills that aren't necessarily baked into communications. And then all of the empathy and process improvement and rethinking transactions from the user's experience that I got in the client service and digital side, I find are hugely applicable to communications and for that matter, to access to information and privacy. You know, in both of those, we're corporate functions. We do exist to enable the other parts of the organization to do their business or to enable citizens to get the information they need to understand what government is up to and so forth. And the, the classical model for communications that I grew up in 20 some years ago had limited capacity to understand those other perspectives. You know, we're always here to help the organization achieve something else. We're not an end in ourselves. And those experiences about thinking through process thinking through what our client needs out of an interaction, even understanding who our client is or thinking about, you know, don't just say in this communication strategy, our objective is to raise awareness. It's like, well, actually, maybe our first goal is to raise awareness and our second is to secure buy-in and our third is to mobilize people to make meaningful progress on X or build confidence in Y. And having that ability to kind of iterate and have objectives that stack on top of each other and to tap into people with statistical and data and analytics metrics to validate what we think we know about clients' needs, to validate how effectively we're actually meeting those needs, to stop just counting how many messages we've sent and start saying, how have we shifted the dialogue or have we shifted the dialogue or do we need to shift the dialogue really gives the opportunity to, to play in this space with a different set of tools. And I think the opportunity to be a little more strategic. So I think I'm much better at communications now and the access to information and privacy and understanding it as a service than I would have been if I had just stayed on my original career trajectory. Coming back with some of those more diverse experiences has given me a whole new space to play in and get really excited about.
Definitely. That's that's amazing insight. And and I really want to bring us back just a little bit just to kind of touch back on that idea of transferable skills. And I know throughout our discussion so far, you've both really um, you've kind of weaved in a little bit about how how you've had some skills from, you know, previous previous experiences, previous roles that um, have been really valuable and transferable. But, you know, the things like teamwork, communication, critical thinking, those are really some of those soft, you know, you, you call them soft skills, but those transferable skills that can really take you from one role to another. So I really want to hear some of your um, thoughts about uh, transferable skills and and how they play a part in, in career uh, advancement. So I'll go to Andrew first. This is such a good question. <laughs> So I, I regularly try and talk to like once per week, at least um, people who are, are still in, in university, either in grad school, usually like just giving them advice about how to get into industry or working for government, places like that. And it's so funny because they always ask about like, oh, what programming languages should I learn? Should I practice R or Python? And that is not at all the advice I give. The advice that I give is you have to really hone a couple quote unquote soft skills. First of which is communication, taking really complicated things and making them very simple and easy for other people to understand. I think that is about 80% of my job right now. Um, basically, that means like delving into the scientific literature or taking a really complicated statistical procedure or trial pilot design and communicating that to non-experts in government, policy experts, let's say, but people that don't understand science and making them understand it well enough so that they're empowered to explain it to their boss, because that's a very important part of government is communicating these things really clearly. And the other piece, of course, is teamwork. This is a huge challenge for people that are used to grad school. Again, I'm going to focus on that experience because in grad school, you're so focused on your own research. Your whole goal is to finish your thesis, publish your experiments, and often at the cost of working with other people. Because of that, people come out of grad school thinking the most important thing is what they can do for themselves and how they can kind of further their own research without thinking that like actually the most important thing is how you can contribute to this overall perspective of work. So how do you actually collaborate with others? How do you kind of learn from others? How do you mentor others on the things that they might not be as experienced in? It doesn't matter what age or what stage of your career is in. There is always opportunity to learn from others and also teach others. And that kind of mutual mentoring is a fundamental aspect of teamwork. Teamwork is a very complicated thing, of course. But those are the things that seem to really stand out to me working in government in the few offices that I have. Clearly communicating complicated concepts to other people in a very clear way and working as part of a team and mutually kind of mentoring each other and learning from each other. Absolutely. And I love that. Uh, I, I always use that when I was kind of informally um, leading some of our admin teams and everything, because we had a, a bit of a turnover in our admin group. And it was like, okay, who's going to teach who and who's going to mentor who, who's going to figure out how, how we're going to distribute these tasks. And I, we kind of started doing this, you know, um, that see it, do it, teach it method, right? Is that, you know what, you've seen it, now you do it, now you can teach it to somebody else. And that's that's a really great skill to have in teamwork. And and also what you're talking about, that breaking down those complex, um, you know, issues or, 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 you know, ideas. And that really that uh, explain it like I'm five 
uh, skill really comes in handy. And especially in communications, I'm sure Linda can attest to this as well. And now as a communications officer, you know, we've got to use plain language in our internal and external com communications um, and not necessarily uh, to dumb it down. That's not the point. It's to make the message clear and meaningful, engaging without losing the substance of the message. That's a skill and that that can come through so many different ways. Um, Linda, do you want to jump in? Yeah, absolutely. I could go off on a tangent forever about this because I agree wholeheartedly with everything that Andrew said and the way you just built on it too. You know, the differentiation between plain language, explaining it clearly and dumbing something down, recognizing that the goal isn't to dumb it down, it's to communicate better. And clarity always helps us with that. I, I could rant on for, you know, three full episodes just about that. So totally agree. But I loved Andrew's point about teamwork as well. And it just, it made me think of like literally Friday of last week, I was doing reference checks for a very recent graduate from an undergrad program who I, I am going to be bringing on to my team. And one of the big deciding points in why I decided to bring this person onto my team was I was talking to their supervisor from a previous like summer job. And what the supervisor said was, it's hard to quantify exactly what it was, but the shifts when this person was working always worked better than the ones when they weren't. You know, they, they were always willing to jump in and contribute to a colleague. They understood what other people were trying to get done and were as committed to helping that get done as the rest. They'd identify problems before they happened and step into that space to fix it. And just that idea that the whole team works better because this person's there making connections and supporting and clarifying how we can contribute um, is so important and is so closely linked to innovation skills and digital mindsets and empathy and all of those things. So I, I think those are absolutely huge. Um, and, and the point that you made about um, plain language and simplicity really not being about dumbing down the message but instead about making sure the message serves its purpose. Uh, I think that is an absolutely huge one. So I think those are massive. The only thing we haven't really touched on that I think is crucial, no matter what role you're playing in what organization anywhere, is that ability to make new linkages or connections between different ideas or different disciplines. And we see a lot of it in communications. You know, you get the scientific advice and the social and economic policy development advice and the legal advice and all of those pieces. And then you have to find a, a path forward out of that. But whether you're in policy or programs or communications or anything, I think that ability to stay tuned in to what's happening organizationally and in the broader context and identify the points that are relevant or that need to be connected to each other to get to the next best outcome or to, to move things forward, I think is really, really crucial. It's, you know, they always talk about it on the policy job posters around synthesizing diverse information or something, but that sounds really complex. And I find that it's just staying tuned in and thinking things through to what does that actually mean, you know? I saw this in the media yesterday. What does that mean for the project I'm working on? I read this scientific report. How does that relate to what we're trying to get done in this space? And that kind of 
recognizing that there's more than one input and being able to put them together to broaden and deepen your own perspective and understanding of the issue, I think is really key. And, and then I guess I'll, I'll throw in one more. I said it was one, and now I'm going to give you a second one. Uh, Please do. The, <laughs> I was going to say curiosity. Like, it, it sounds silly. You know, in HR development programs, we often call it developmental mindset. But it is that hunger to know what I don't know yet. I think so often we get bogged down in, I'm trained in this, and this is my discipline, and this is what my discipline tells me, and therefore we do this. And the people that I'm constantly looking for on my team and the ones who constantly help us do more than I believed we could are the ones who are always curious about what am I not seeing? What's not within my discipline that has an impact? Where can I get better at this? Or where am I getting lost? And just that kind of curiosity and hunger to learn more and grow more and make novel connections, I think adds you know, exponential value to teams. So yeah, sorry, I, I warned you I could rant about this. And, and then I did. Absolutely. I mean, I could too. And, and I completely agree. It's that sometimes we get stuck, especially when we're kind of in more of a scientific or policy role, we get stuck in these silos where, you know, we're and, and, and like Andrew mentioned, you know, when you're working on your on your thesis and everything, you're you're really focused on this is what I'm doing, this is what I've been assigned to do, and and this is what I'm working on. And it's 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 easy to just get lost into that and not really learn more or expand your experience beyond that little silo that you have. So teamwork and and sharing knowledge and and all that kind of stuff is is, is just such a such a key part in in growing professionally. That that professional development is not just courses you take or you know furthering your education or, or things like that or doing assignments it's 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 also that that peer-to-peer knowledge sharing that is is really really key and I see Andrew nodding here did you want to did you want to jump in yeah um I think part of uh part of what Linda's saying to me it does strike me as actually quite advanced for people starting to get in government and so I just want to make it clear that you know it's okay if when you're starting out, you're not making these broad connections across silos and departments. That's really hard to do. I still struggle with that. And I'm an assistant director, a senior researcher. So don't stress if that sounds really like hard for you to do at first. I'm going to give you a, a bit of a suggestion, though, um, to maybe start thinking about that. And it kind of connects to this clear communication piece as well. And that is the importance of empathy and perspective taking. So when I'm talking about clear communication, like we're all discussing now about, you know, not dumbing things down, but making it clear, fundamentally, what do we mean by that? Well, it involves a lot of imagining from the perspective of the people you are communicating to. So for me personally, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, I had to advise on how Dr. Tam can communicate very complicated scientific things to the public to encourage them to engage in public health measures, to encourage them to get vaccinated against COVID-19. So a lot of my advice came from understanding the perspective of the people going through this very stressful, very complicated time of their lives. Now, fundamentally in my job now, a lot of the perspective taking involves imagining the perspective of the people that I'm working with, that I'm briefing to. So that involves my director, that involves the partners that I work with across immigration, I'm always thinking about, you know, I'm an expert in experimentation and behavioral insights, but what does everyone else at immigration really know about that area? It might not be much at all. So I have to always imagine that when I'm working with them, they might not understand 
what I have access to, the kind of skills that I can bring to the table. So I just have to think about how to communicate that in the kind of shortest, sweetest, most impactful way possible anytime I'm talking to people like this. But also shifting it back to our clients, newcomers to Canada trying to access certain settlement services, things like that, or even just come to Canada in general. You always have to think about what clients are going through in their day-to-day lives as they fill out like a 30-page form just to even begin to apply to come to Canada. You have to think about their perspective and their lived experiences and how that may impact how they understand the information you're, you're actually giving within your kind of service delivery or operations. Those skills, I know they might sound complex, but it really goes back to that communications piece and understanding who is receiving the information that you're giving. Um, in academia, that could mean that you're always talking to scientists. So you always communicate things in a scientific way. In fact, if you simplify things, it's kind of frowned upon in science because you want to seem like you're very smart and you're citing all these places. But in the real world, the empathy and perspective taking is going to serve you so much more. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's just a know your audience kind of moment as well. And you know, and now I'm going to actually ask you, I'm going to put you both on the spot and ask you and hope that maybe our uh, managers, our current managers, our current supervisors are going to maybe mute this part of the podcast. But have either of you... (laughs) I can't wait to hear the question now. (laughs) Have either of you ever exaggerated your experience to gain a role? Linda? You know, I've always said I'm not nearly smart enough to trust myself to be anything less than scrupulously honest. I don't ever (laughs) want to have to keep track of my story. And I don't want to have to remember what I said. If I only say what I really did, what I really experienced, what I really think, then I don't have to cover my tracks further down the road. So I I really haven't. I always figured sooner or later, they're going to notice, you know, so I, I would sometimes say, well, I don't have experience doing this. But here's why I don't think experience is the be all and end all. And here's why I think you should still look at me. I've done that. But to try to fluff up what I've done would just leave me in that world of going either it's going to become really obvious that I wasn't straightforward and then I have less credibility or I'm going to forget that I said that I had that experience and then the whole charade is going to fall down around me or I'm going to do really well anyway, even without the experience, in which case there's something other than experience that really counts for something. So why don't I talk about that? So I, I've gone straight up honesty, mostly out of the self-awareness that I could not live with the stress of trying to keep track of my story. Absolutely. You kind of come to that point of, is it even worth it, right? Is this job worth it if somebody figures out that that I really, you know, oversold myself a little bit? And there's and you know, there's something to be said there about, you know, of course, you can, you can kind of, uh, you know, f- fluff a little bit, just kind of toot your own horn where you can. But where I've found, I've never, you know, really exaggerated experience. But what I have done is on those, uh, you know, jobs.gc.ca, I'll go on there. And, you know, if I answer a question, they say, do you have significant experience in XYZ? And I don't, but I'll still check yes. And then in my comments, I'll say, I don't. However, here's where I think I, I have experience that relates to this question. And that would at least get me past that screening bot that, you know, would have screamed me out saying no. And most of the times, you know, it hadn't worked for me. Maybe I just wasn't 
kind of writing it the right way. But I did have one time where it did work, where I did get screened in. And when I chatted during my interview about that, I said, you know what, I did check yes for this, but here's how I interpreted that question. Here's how I kind of rationalized saying yes to that question. And, and it worked for me. You know, I, I made that pool and was it necessarily an exaggeration? Kind of, but it did work for me. And that also leads me to a point, I'm going to let Andrew uh, talk here in a moment, um, that also leads me to a point where you don't have to hit every single point of experience on a job poster. So just because there's nine items of, ex you know, required experience or, or, you know, even competencies or things like that, you don't have to have every single one. You don't have to look at it and say, you know what, I, you know, I have like, you know, six of these, but these three, I don't really have a lot of experience in. Don't let that, you know, deter you from applying for a, a process or a position. Um, you don't have to hit everything. You just have to hit the right ones and and show your potential, show your knowledge, and show that you're you're right for the role. Andrew, if it's in as essential, I mean, you do have to show that you meet it. But I would say that if you kick butt on six of the nine, then you can use a little bit of creative license for saying, I gained my experience through this other thing that I would like to talk about. Like they have to be able to demonstrate that you met all of the essential qualifications or they can't justify an appointment and it can get very messy. But I would absolutely agree that if you think you're better on six than on all nine, you shouldn't let that deter you from applying. Absolutely. Of course. So, Andrew, have you ever exaggerated or told a little white lie? You know what? I haven't, but I'm going to talk about this topic for a little bit because it's one that I'm kind of been passionate about recently. I'm glad you mentioned jobs.gc.ca because there are so many really cool job postings there. And a lot of them ask you to answer like 20 paragraph answer questions. And they're going to ask you hyper specific questions such as the following. Have you ever applied innovative methods to better understand regulatory policy? And, you know, I've never done that myself, but I have done research to inform uh, policy implementation. I have done research to implement service delivery. So when you answer these questions, you know, one approach could be that you fluff out your past experience to make it fit the specific question. But I would argue that like, you don't necessarily have to quote unquote fluff it out. If you're just real with your answer and straight, honest, say that your past experiences, like, like, uh, you know, just, um, this is what I've done. And this is specifically how I think it applies to your question. Putting it into the context of the original question will help you and feel free to use your own kind of creative licensing there. Like my interpretation of the question is that a core, you know, two or three core competencies of this question would be the following. Here's how I've demonstrated those core competencies in past experiences. And I say this because those GC jobs uh, questions, uh, as Linda was saying, they are based on these kinds of uh, statement of merit criteria that we have to, as managers, we have to actually justify giving someone a job and we have to match them to the SOMC. Now, the problem is, is that some managers or some you know, HR people, they make those questions so ridiculously specific that almost makes it impossible to even find people for a specific job. So you have to understand that, like, you know, as Tamara is saying, when you're answering these questions and you don't have all the specific job skills, like, don't worry, there's almost no perfect person for that job based on the way it's written. You have to understand that. And they're just looking for someone to, to just bring themselves to the job and their experiences. So I wouldn't say like necessarily, uh, you know, exaggerate or fluff out. I, I don't think you need to do that. 
But what I think you need to do is be more honest about your own experiences and how they actually apply to the job that you would be doing. And just realize that the job that you would be doing day to day for that posting might not reflect the actual posting perfectly. So that's where it helps to, you know, if you do a bit of research and maybe talk to someone in that office and find out really what the role is about, that'll help you answer the actual job posting questions a little bit more honestly and candidly without needing to fluff it out. Yes, I love that. I love how you both dodge the questions so well, but no, uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> no, and I'd like to ask you both uh, one final question before I go to and kind of uh, ask you each to, uh, you know, put in some of your final thoughts. But, you know, I have some colleagues that that do ask and then they'll, they'll you know, kind of say, well, how am I going to convince my manager to help me? you know, develop some of these experiences? How am I, you know, what, what if what if my manager doesn't, uh, you know, allow for some of these opportunities where I can, I, I can get some of this experience to advance in my job or my career? And it also leads to that question is, well, whose job is it to help you get experience? And what I found is, is, you know, really every, every manager's a little bit different. And, and there's some key parts that I think that they all really want to know before, quote unquote, giving permission or allowing you to take on like a side project or something that might help you gain experience that's maybe not necessarily related to your current role. And that is show them how it would be a value to, you know, to to you to professionally and to maybe to your organization. Hey, if I do this, this is how it's going to help us get ahead and this and this and this. Um, what's going to happen to your tasks while you're doing this, right? Is it going to be something you're going to be able to do at the same time? Do you do this as your manager to find coverage? What's it going to cost them? Is it free? Is it something, you know, like break down the costs and the time that's going to be involved in, uh, in you taking on this uh, project or whatever it is to gain this experience, right? Know your manager and give them all the information up front of, how it's going to benefit you and your organization and what is in it for them and how are they going to manage without you if they have to while you're doing this, right? So what do you guys think, you know, how can somebody convince or really ask their manager, hey, you know, help me get this experience and and whose job really is it? Andrew. Yeah, this is a great question. And I think yeah, uh, let's just, so on the first part, let's assume that you have already approached your manager and you said, you explained all the things you just explained and the manager says something like, oh, unfortunately we don't have capacity, you know, in the short term for that kind of activity for you, but I appreciate you bringing it forward. Let's talk about it in six months. You know, that's a little bit of a disappointing answer to hear and something you might hear in some cases. Um, if that happens, I would recommend doing the following. Talk to someone who is a senior policy analyst or a senior researcher, either on your team directly or perhaps within your division or even within your branch. To do this, I would just email them and say, hey, can we have a coffee chat? Um, you know, I want to ask a few questions about your role and just learn from you a little bit. Most people would be willing to do that and actually speak with you. And I would ask for their advice because people that are in senior roles like that, they've probably navigated that before, specifically within your division or branch. So they might give you some, some tips about how to navigate maybe a, a resistant manager that um, may not be as willing to give you that kind of experience. So that said, that's, that's the kind of tips and tricks I would use to navigate a manager that's not as willing. 
But let's say a manager is willing. And I think, you know, a lot of managers would be willing to uh, allow you to give, uh, get experience in other areas or other activities related to your role, or perhaps otherwise not immediately related to your role. And I think the best way to go about that is right now we're, we're in PMA time right now. So I would really recommend considering adding it to your learning plan. Talk to your manager about your goals for what you want to learn in the next year. And then look at these other activities that you're thinking about being involved in. Perhaps they're within your team. Perhaps they're outside your team and within the branch or elsewhere in the department. Actually listing them off in your learning plan is kind of a psychological tool, behavioral tool, because it's something called pre-commitment. Both the manager and the employee pre-commit to you learning those things. And, you know, sometimes you don't want to be too specific in the learning plan. But here's an example where I would try to be really specific of the two or three things that you actually want to learn and achieve from doing this other experience and a couple ways about how you might go about doing it. More specific, the better. That allows you to have an actual plan to um, actually be accountable for, for both your manager and, and you as an employee. So that six months down the road, if you haven't done it yet, you could say, hey, manager, look at my uh, learning plan. We still haven't done this. And you can actually get some support that way. Love that. Linda? I think my answer is going to be better now because I got to listen to Andrew first. Because honestly, my first reaction was, look, if your manager is not interested in helping you with your development, you need a better manager. Um, and I, I still actually think that's true. Sorry, I, I also think agree that with that, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, really, I do think a huge part of our role as managers, whether we're you know at our first supervisory position, supervising a team of one, or whether we're directors or DGs or ADMs or whatever is developing people and developing them with the recognition that fundamentally we're one institution and getting experience in another branch or another organization or another region doesn't just help that other place. Having well-developed people with a broad perspective and the ability to apply their skills in the right ways, not just for what we need now, but for what we're going to need in five or 10 years benefits the system as a whole, and that's part of what we're supposed to be doing. So I think that's really important. But I actually really love the pre-commit idea. Putting something in your learning plan doesn't mean that you've already got signed approval to participate in a particular course, but it does put it there as a little bit of a shared commitment uh, and keeps it, you know, everybody always says what gets, uh, what, what gets measured gets done. If we've actually put it in the learning plan, then both the manager and the employee have kind of expressed, this is something that we see as beneficial. This is part of where we're moving forward. And no matter what they say day to day with the decision in front of them, managers want to be seen as a great person to work for, somebody who develops talent, somebody who's like a boss of choice. And the learning plan is, I think, a brilliant strategy for kind of nudging that into place. And I think that pivots us over a little bit to your other question tomorrow, which was about whose responsibility is it? And I think it's really both. You know, it's it's not an either or. It is always a shared responsibility. As a manager, I can see the potential in someone or I can see a gap that I think needs to be addressed. And I have a role not just in identifying the gap, but in helping them meet it. But the piece that I can't actually bring to the table is knowing, to go back to Andrew's earlier point, where their passions are or where their aspirations are. You know, if I hired you as a call center agent, 
I don't know that what you really want to do is anti-poverty policy development or something like that. So there needs to be that two-way dialogue where the manager is creating space, but also the employee is taking some ownership for saying, these are the things that I'm passionate about, or this is what I would like to learn more about, or I hear you nudging me towards a really successful career in administration. And I love that you see that in me, but I actually want to be a researcher or in communications or something else. And it needs that give and take on both sides to find which priorities are worth pursuing because it's not just a corporate decision and it's not just an individual one either. Absolutely. You took the words right out of my mouth there. That's it's, it's, it's ownership and it's, it's, it's two way street for sure. Um, this has been an amazing discussion and I feel like we could go on for, you know, another hour. I still have a whole list of things I wanted to ask you all about, but amazing discussion. And uh, thank you for joining us today. A special thanks to uh, Andrew and Linda for taking the time to chat with me today. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Let us know on social media. Uh, don't hesitate to share your ideas for other topics that you'd like us to talk about, to explore. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to FYN Unscripted. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your colleagues. Visit the Federal Youth Network social media channels and share with us the topics you would like us to cover in our upcoming podcast episodes. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to FYN Unscripted on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast player. 